We're going to continue our study uh, this morning in the book of Romans. But we, as you recall, we, we took a little bit of a break last week. And the break really simply revolves around this book. This is a, this is a big book. You know, it's um, 66 books. It's, you know, thousands of pages long. And, you know, I, I would venture to say that if, if some of you took uh, a classic uh, that you've read over the years, maybe Gone with the Wind or, or some other uh, classic book, you know, I'd, my kids are reading through To Kill a Mockingbird right now. So that's, it kind of takes me back to my middle school days. But do you know that nobody could understand any of those books if they just jumped around and looked at different chapters week by week, flipped it to the front, flipped it to the back, flipped it to the middle, then flipped it to the front, flipped it to the back, and flipped it to the middle, and then flipped it three quarters of the way through. Uh, and so, so many times that is how, uh, unfortunately, we conduct our Bible study. And then we wonder why there are many things that are hard to understand because uh, at, at times we haven't looked at the story uh, in the, the manner or the way that God has looked at the story or, or that God has recorded the story. And so we started to look at a couple of concepts last week as, as we're in our study of the book of Romans, but there was a couple of verses in Romans chapter 3 that caused me to think about jumping out of Romans to go through God's story. What is, what is God's story? Because somebody would come into the, into the book of Romans and say, uh, as they're listening to Paul write this down, as he, and he, as he tells that the way that you're saved is by grace, through faith, you don't have to do anything to be saved. That God has done it all. And that God has a manner of making man righteous, and it's not by doing good, trying harder, getting religion, going through the rituals, counting different things, lighting can't. None of those things can make a man righteous. God says that a man is made righteous solely on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. And some may have accused Paul at that time saying, wait a minute here. That's, what about the Old Testament, Paul? <laughs> you can't just make up a new way to get saved. I mean, we've got this Old Testament all, and they wouldn't even call it that. They would say, we've got the Hebrew Bible. What are you, what are you talking about? This is new. This is this is a new way to get saved. This is a new way that God is making people righteous. You can't just discard the Hebrew Bible. And Paul says, no, that's where I'm getting it from. This is a consistent message all the way through. And so we jumped out of Romans because Paul says a couple of things. And we want to see how the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible communicates these concepts that we find in Romans. And the first concept, and this is review from last week is this concept that faith righteousness, in other words, the righteousness that you and I need to get to heaven comes on the basis of faith. That means that we are trusting in the work of another. We're not trusting in our works. We're not trusting in our ability to be good. You know, I can't even trust in my ability to remember to take the trash out on a weekly basis, let alone do something that would secure my eternal salvation. Thank the Lord for my wife. She's very good at reminding me about the trash. But, I, you know, I, I can't expect her to be there to remind me of everything that I need to do to be eternally saved. That's why God doesn't want it to depend on you. He wants it to depend on his son. He wants to make that provision for you and for I. And so this first concept, this faith righteousness, looking away from ourselves to somebody else, is apart from the law. That means you don't have to keep the law. In fact, let's you know in secret, you can't keep the law. That's, that's the whole point of the law is to show you that you don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. But God has provided a righteousness which is apart from the law. And then notice this next word. It's witnessed about in the law and the prophets, which is a synonym for the Old Testament. We find that in Romans 3.21. And so there were a couple of ways that we looked at how this was witnessed through the Old Testament. And you're going to see this consistency in the Old Testament. And the consistency, number one, is that the penalty for sin is death. It's been this way since Adam and Eve in the garden. That's never changed. And so this is going to sound like a trick question, but it's really not. It's just straightforward. No slide of hand here. If the penalty for sin is death, then what must be paid? Death. See, it's, I mean, that's one plus one equals two. I mean, that's, that's easy. And yet so many times when we see the penalty of sin is death in the Bible, many people over many years have gone about different ways to devise how to handle that penalty without death. And that's every religion that's ever been created in the world 
tries to handle this penalty without death. Good works, whatever those might look like. Good deeds, religion, rituals. That doesn't take care of the death penalty. Imagine if a man on, on death row in our court system is, is sentenced to the electric chair and he tells the judge, hey, instead of the electric chair, how about I just do a bunch of good deeds the rest of my life? Well, no, that doesn't work because the penalty is death. Therefore, a death must be paid. That is a consistent truth communicated in the Old Testament. Another consistent truth, we find all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that God promised a deliverer. God promised that he's going to provide a solution to sin's penalty, which means he's not expecting you to provide a solution. He wants to provide it for you. And he promised that all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So right here, right here in Genesis 3, right at the beginning, this seed of faith righteousness is sown. In other words, looking away from myself, looking to the merits of somebody else, to gain a righteousness that I could never produce on my own. It's sown right here because God is saying, I'm going to have to send you a deliverer to take care of this. And we looked at that last week. What's another consistent thing that the Old Testament witnesses to? God has a, has a means. He has a way to accept a substitutionary atoning death in your place and still execute his justice. His justice is not compromised in this way. And yet, this uh, is, a, is a, uh, an opportunity for death to be paid, but you don't have to pay it. A substitute can pay that penalty for you. And so we see that this is simply an illustration all throughout the Old Testament of how this coming promised deliverer was going to take care of the sin penalty once and for all. This is why when you go to the Old Testament and sometimes you flip to the beginning, you flip to a quarter way through, and you're like, what are all these animals getting killed for? Like, this is bloody. I mean, look at all these animals getting slaughtered and sacrificed. You know why? God is giving us a visual aid. He's showing us how and what his promised deliverer was going to do to take care of the sin problem. Because the sin problem has two problems. We got a penalty that we cannot pay. It's called death. And we've got a lack of righteousness that we would never qualify for heaven. And in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, God took care of both of those issues. Jesus died for your sins. He died the death that you and I deserved. He is the one who paid that penalty. He is the one who was your substitute. And he was perfect. He lived a perfect life. He was, he was God in the flesh. And he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay on the cross. They took him off the cross. They buried him, and he rose again three days later. That's what we're celebrating next week. I hope that's not a, by the way, I hope that's not a once-a-year celebration for you. I hope that is just cycled in your mind every day of your life that you've got a savior, you've got a promised deliverer who not only died to pay for your sins, but he rose again. He conquered death. That's why he can promise you eternal life because he knows how to conquer death. He conquered it and he can take you with them to live with him forever. And so we see even these concepts communicated in the Old Testament. The second thing that we saw and reason we jumped out was because of Romans 3.31. Because it says that this type of righteousness, faith righteousness, not you doing it on your own, but you trusting in the work of another, actually establishes a law. You know, and, and it, faith righteousness is not some end around, not, not some trick play that God threw in in the New Testament because, oh man, we really, I really messed that up in the Old Testament. I better figure out a trick play. It's not a, you know, those of you football, it's not a flea flicker. You know, it's not a double reverse. I mean, it's... A, God had this all figured out from the beginning. This was God's plan to save man by grace through faith in the work that the promised deliverer was going to do. That was his plan. That's always been his plan. And that's what Paul is saying here is that this concept of faith righteousness uh, establishes the law. It does not skirt God's righteous judgment. It takes it head on and meets his requirements of justice. And so we see um, that this concept of faith righteousness establishes the law because God's perfect and righteous standard, as revealed in the law, which we'll look at briefly this morning, is not compromised and it's perfectly upheld. We also see that the justice demanded by God's law is perfectly fulfilled. What does the law require of a sinner? Death. What did Jesus do for you? He died. He died for you. He died in your place. And so we see the law is completely established by this concept of faith, righteousness. And now, as we 
looked last week, what has happened over the course of time is that as mankind has been confronted with the issue of sin, they've had multiple, what we called last week, fig leaf sowing parties. You remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they fell, they sowed fig leaves up to cover themselves, to, to make themselves right with God, and God would not accept that. Cain and Abel had their own version of a fig leaf sowing party. Cain brought a sacrifice that did not shed blood. We looked at that last week. We could go through every story of the Bible and see fig leaf sowing party after fig leaf sowing party. People trying to take care of this issue of sin and righteousness on their own. Let me just cover up. And you know, every religion that's ever existed in the world is a fig leaf sowing party. That's all it is. It's, it's sitting around our, our righteousness sewing machines and trying to put together a, a covering that will be accepted by God on the day of judgment, and that will never happen. Every fig leaf sewing party ends up and results in disaster. In fact, do you know at the, at the lake of fire, at the great white throne judgment of God, he is going to pull out our, our works, and he's going to judge us based on our works. He's going to pull out the, all the fig leaf sewing parties that we've ever held, uh, if we're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and he's going to judge us, and he says, that covering's not good enough. That covering is not good enough. And so he's going to illustrate through the Old Testament what his promised deliverer was going to do. But everyone from the fall forward were born outside of the garden. Everyone was born in a position separated from God. Everyone was born with a sin penalty of death hanging over their head. This is why even Abel, who we don't find anything negative recorded in the Bible, even Abel had to offer an animal sacrifice. Even Abel deserved to die. Even Abel deserved to spend eternity in a lake of fire. He was separated from God. And we know that the penalty of sin demands payment, and it's death in all three aspects. Physical death, which we're all very familiar with, but we also have spiritual death and we have eternal death. And death, as you recall, defined is simply separation. In physical death, our our spirit is separated from our body. In spiritual death, we're separated from God. And then in eternal death, we're separated from God for eternity. And so death just just communicates separation. And so the penalty of sin is death, and it's death in all three aspects. And we see this even from the fall and going forward. That's why when Romans, we get to Romans 3, Paul gets to the end. He says, all mankind is guilty. All have sinned. There's none good. There's none righteous. We may say, well, that's a good person. But according to God's standard, there's none good, none good enough to go to heaven, no one righteous enough to get there on their own. I don't care how many times we go to church. I don't care how many times you get dunked in water. I don't care how many rituals that we go through. That is not going to be enough. Nobody is good enough. That's what the Bible teaches. Those are all fig leaf sowing parties. Those are all our methods of taking care of this issue and God wants to take care of the situation. And so the question for God becomes this. How can God remain just and punish sin as he should, but still love and not destroy the one who sinned? See, when we look at the character of God, he's completely just, but he's also completely loving. And he's not more just than he is loving. He's not more loving than he is just. This is where a lot of imbalances in the character of God come out in our culture. We say, how could a loving God send somebody to hell? The the better question, and I've said this a number of times, is how could a just God let anyone into heaven? See, that's that's really the question. How can a just God not execute justice on lawbreakers? You say, well, I'm not a lawbreaker. What? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen something? (laughs) You're a lawbreaker. You're a sinner. That's what the Bible says. And so that's not a comfortable message, but, you know, we're uh, we're here to communicate truth. Not, not build a, a kingdom. We're not building a business here to, to gather more people in and to make money and to, to build bigger. We're here to communicate truth because we, we think it's that valuable to do so. Adam and Eve tried to cover up with fig leaves. Cain tried his own version of a fig leaf sowing party, a sacrifice that did not shed blood, a, a, a sacrifice that did not take care of the penalty of sin, which was death. And so this million-dollar question This two-part question, this million-dollar question that we're answering as we look through the testimony of the Old Testament is this. How can Adam or man get rid of his sin with all its consequences and gain a righteousness equal to God's righteousness so we can be accepted back in his presence? 
And as we looked at last week, God gave a beautiful visual aid pointing to the final work that his promised deliverer would do. This visual aid was a substitutionary atoning death of an animal. And it was through this death that Adam and Eve were made acceptable to God based on the final work that the promised deliverer would one day do. It wasn't a fig leaf sowing party. God illustrated through the death of an innocent animal how he would eventually solve and deal with the ultimate sin problem via his promised deliverer. And from Cain and Abel, we learn that an offering for sin must shed blood. God's justice to be unharmed. There must be a death. You know, God is an excellent communicator. He's, you know, he's not like, you know, the middle school girlfriend that some of us had that you're trying to figure out what's going on in her mind. You're like, what, what, is she, what does she mean when she says this? Or what is, or, and to be fair, ladies, I know guys are just as bad. So uh, the middle school boyfriend that you're trying to figure out what's going on in his mind. This isn't the way God works. God communicates and what he says he means. And so when he says the penalty of sin is death, that's what he means. It, face value, we take him in face value. There's got to be a death that's paid. And what we're going to find is that the truth of the Bible is this. Either you can pay that death or you can let Jesus pay your death for you. That's your two options. You want to face the death penalty on your own? You want to trust in your good works? You want to trust in the life that you lived? You can, you can do that. God gives you that choice, but you'll face the death penalty on your own. You will pay that and it's an eternal death consequence. In other words, you never pay it off. It's like having a mortgage, but not 30 years, you know, forever. You just never pay it off. Or you can believe what God said, that Jesus can step into your place and die the death that you deserved for you. He can die in your place as a substitute. And so all throughout the Old Testament, this is the visual aid that God puts together. Now, as we move forward in our story, because we don't want to just get... We just don't want to stop in Genesis 3 because the Bible has a lot more to say about this. And so we're going to kind of move briskly and quickly, um, Lord willing, if I don't get too long-winded. But we're going to move pretty quickly through the Old Testament. But what we're trying to put together is that these concepts remain. Penalty of sin is death. There's a promised deliverer coming. And God illustrated what the promised deliverer would do through animal sacrifices. And we're going to see that throughout the Old Testament. God establishes the law. Um, via faith righteousness, because what we have is we have somebody that pays the penalty that the law requires. And so as God promises deliverer, he further funnels this, this, uh, this person down so we can recognize him when he comes. And so um, at a point in time in Genesis 12, God chooses a man uh, to build a nation through. And it's through this nation and through the, his lineage that this promised deliverer would come. Abraham was 75 years old. When God called him away from his family into a country that he would show him, he said he would make a great nation out of him and that he would bless him and that all families of the earth would be blessed through him. Let's look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, which basically uh, says exactly what I just read. But it says, Now the Lord said, had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And, you know, reading back into the Old Testament from the New Testament, you know that Paul says in Galatians that this is the first preaching of the gospel, if you will. This, this message that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him directly refers to that promised deliverer, promised back in Genesis 3.15. And so God is, is now funneling his promise. He's, he's now working through a man. He's going to build a nation. He's going to work through his lineage to bring about this promised deliverer from Genesis 3.15 to take care of the sin problem. We see that God promised Abraham many children. His children would be as numerous as the stars. And although um, everything contrary seemed to be true, in fact, the years were gaining on Abraham. You know, you, you hear this phrase, your, your biological clock is ticking. You know, better start having kids. People will say that to be, their biological clock might have been like turned off. I mean, that's how far along they were. I mean, he, he gets to about 100 years old and Sarah, his wife, gets into her 90s before they have children. And all of these things are working against him. And yet Genesis fifteen six says this, 
Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. See, in right here, we have this concept that Abraham is looking away from himself for the righteousness needed to be acceptable to God. He believes God. We notice, we note from John 8 later on that Abraham was looking for this coming promise deliverer planned in Genesis 3.15. And so his faith was in this coming deliverer. And God, on the basis of that faith, trusting in his eventual solution to the sin problem, credited him righteousness. And this is exactly who Paul's going to go to in Romans 4 when we continue our study there to show that this is not a new concept, that God has always been in the business of saving people who will simply put their faith in him and his provision for sin. And so we see that in the life of Abraham right here in Genesis 15, 6. And I mentioned this at the ripe age of 100, uh, Abram and, and uh, Abraham and Sarah and his wife, uh, she was in her 90s. Think about that, ladies. Those of you who had given birth, that's, that would be a tough proposition. But they gave birth to their first son. Truly a miracle. Truly a miracle. And it was through Isaac and then through his son Jacob and, 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 and this continued lineage through this family that God brought this promise to deliver. This promise that he made back to Adam and Eve that her seed, the promise deliverer, would crush the serpent or Satan's head, yet he, Satan, would bruise his or the promise deliverer's heel. And God is fulfilling this promise through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, onto Judah, and so on and so forth, all the way down in history. And spoiler alert, Jesus Christ is him. <laughs> and we see that played out in Matthew. And that's all the way back to the beginning. This is God's story. This is us trying not to pick it up uh, midway through the book and trying to figure out what was going on. But, you know, Isaac uh, is a perfect substitution illustration. We say that God was illustrating substitutionary atoning sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament to show us what the promised deliverer would do. Well, here's a beautiful one, Isaac. You know, Isaac was uh, a young man, but he too was born separated from God. Isaac also deserved to die. Isaac had a sin debt. Isaac needed to take care of his sin issue as well. So the fact that, that he was going to die shouldn't be a shock to us. Now, the way it was going to happen is a little shocking because God tells Abraham to kill his son. And, and I want you to notice the wording that he uses. Now, this is the son that they waited 25 years for. He's, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. Now, he's doing some other things as he's waiting, but we don't have time to get into that. But he's waiting, and finally Isaac is born. And yet we see in Genesis 22 that God instructs Abraham to kill his son. And as um, verse 2 says, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so we, we read the story that Abraham rises early, he obeys God. Isaac goes with him. Isaac uh, bears the wood for the offering. And Isaac kind of looks around and says, boy, this isn't adding up, Dad. I, I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's, where's the sacrifice? And, and even in Abraham's mind right there, he says, God will provide the sacrifice. Abraham knows who the sacrifice is at this point. But in his thinking, God's going to provide the sacrifice. And so he takes Isaac up, he, uh, and, and he begins to tie him to the altar, he begins to thrust the knife down to kill his son, and he hears a voice from heaven. But Abraham was trusting in God's goodness to provide a solution to death. Um, he took the knife to plunge it into Isaac. We, we gain insight into Abraham's thinking. I mean, you, you always wonder, like, what was going through their mind? You know, your kids, uh, you know, as my kids have done really dumb and crazy things over the years, part, part of me as a parent is like, what was going through your mind? Like, what were you thinking about? You know, hypothetically, if you took a pair of box cutters and, and cut your thumb, I mean, what were you thinking about? And what was going through your mind? No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I'm going to tell you what was going through his mind, the same thing that was going through my mind as a teenager when I did almost the same exact thing. So uh, like father, like son. But, um, but no, you, you wonder sometimes in biblical stories, what, works, what was going through their mind? What was Abraham thinking about this? And we get this insight in the book of Hebrews. And you know, you know what Abraham reckoned in his mind? God promised me Isaac. God's good. God told me to kill Isaac. 
so I guess if I kill him, God's going to raise him from the dead. That's what was going through Abraham's mind. So he, had, he has no problem by faith slamming this knife down into his son, killing him because he's trusting in the goodness of God. He's trusting in the promise of God. This is a man who not only believed God and got credited righteousness, but this was a man who went on with God and walked by faith. God calls, we know, from heaven to stop Abraham. And it was God who provided a substitute for Isaac. As he, as he stops Abraham, he says, look over in the bush. He sends a ram who gets caught with his horns in the thicket. He says, there's the substitute. That ram is going to die in Isaac's place. And you know, if the ram had not died that day, Isaac would have died. But again, we get this beautiful picture, Old Testament testifying to this concept of substitutionary atoning death. The lamb dying in place of Isaac. And so we have this beautiful picture. As we go on through history, um, we see that that representation represents exactly what Jesus did. Except whereas Abraham got to keep his son, God gave up his son for the ultimate penalty. And Jesus Christ, the son of God, went through and paid that penalty for you and for I. But it's, again, a beautiful picture of the substitutionary work of our promise to deliver as God was illustrating throughout the Old Testament. Now, we leave Abraham and we fast forward uh, a few generations um, and we look at this, this time in Egypt. You know, we've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob had a son named Joseph who was sold into slavery. And then he became second in command in Egypt. Great story. Don't have time to go through how he got there, but he becomes Second in command in Egypt, he moves his family there to protect them from famine. And then we know that years later, Exodus 1.8, that the Israelites were made slaves by a king who did not know Joseph. Ironically enough, this whole time period in the nation of Israel's life was, was prophesied to Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, God told him that his people would be slaves in a country for 400 years. And so that's exactly what happened. And so at the end of that time, God sends Moses to communicate these 10 plagues to Pharaoh to let his people go. The last of these plagues is what we want to focus on. It's the most intense out of the 10, and it's become, has come to be known as the Passover. And what God did is he informed the Israelites of this. The firstborn child in every house would die that night in Egypt. And every firstborn animal in Egypt would also die. And they would die at his hands, at the angel of death's hands. That was what was communicated to the nation of Israel. Now, was God wrong in saying this? No, God in his justice could wipe out every single one of us the moment that we sin. It's because of his mercy that he doesn't do that. It's because of his love that he doesn't do that. But that's what we deserve. That's what the Bible says. When you break the law, the penalty for sin is death. That should happen, right? Immediately. So God in his mercy, he could, he could do this every night if he wanted to. But he doesn't do this. He provides a way for escape. It's known as the Passover. And um, <clears throat> for those of you that like clean houses and clean doors, this probably would not have worked out well for you. This is kind of dirty and gross. But what he did is he designed a way that an animal, a lamb, could die in the place of the firstborn. And so he went through some specific instructions. In fact, they're very specific. We don't have time to read through them all, but they're found in Exodus 12, 1 through 46, if you want to look through them. Um, but the first thing this lamb had to be, it had to be a male. It had to be a male. It had to be without blemish. You couldn't just take old gimpy leg that can't get around and go, hey, let's just sacrifice gimpy leg because he, he's not going to make it anyways. Um, you couldn't take someone with, you know, one of the lambs with, with a disease and say, I mean, he's about to die in the next week. Let's just sacrifice that guy. No, it had to be a, a, a perfect lamb without blemish. Uh, the lamb had to be sacrificed at the appointed time. It had to be sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. It had to be sacrificed at the right time of the day, at twilight. All these details. The blood was to be shed. The blood was to be applied to the doorpost and the lintel. They were to stay inside the house until morning. So sacrifice the lamb at twilight, apply the blood, and stay in the house until morning. And then finally... We were told that they were not to break any of the bones. And so why does God go through this much detail? Well, you're going to see why next week when we talk about the promised deliverer, who was a male, who was without blemish, who was sacrificed at the appointed time, who shed blood, who 
did not have any of his bones broken. See, this was a, a visual aid pointing forward to what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. You know, they wanted to break his legs, but he had already given up the spirit. They said, oh, he's already dead. We're not going to break his legs. I mean, God put this thing together. I mean, this is God's story. He, he put this thing together. That's why it fits together so perfectly. And so we see this in the Passover. And so when the death angel saw the blood applied to the doorpost, he would literally pass over. That's where the name comes from. He would pass over that house. Why? Because judgment and death had already fallen on that house in the form of a substitute. The substitute had died in the place of a firstborn. God is a just God, and he was bringing judgment on sin, but as a God of love, he was also mercifully providing a way of escape for the Israelites. This is a continuous theme in the Old Testament. So when Paul says the law and the prophets witness to this, he's telling the truth. He's not just creating a new way to get saved. This is what the Old Testament teaches over and over and over again. In fact, I'm sure by this time, at this point in this message, it's getting repetitive for you. That's good. I want it to be. It needs to be repetitive for us. We need to be able to trust the God of the Bible and what he says is going to save us from an eternal damnation, save us from the penalty of our sins, provide us with forgiveness of sins, give us eternal life as a free gift, not for something that we earn or deserve, but something that he provides for us when we trust in the finished work of his son. See, that's what we're looking at here. Yes, it's repetitive, but yes, this is what God has been doing through history, is pointing forward to this day. And Jesus Christ, uh, you know, you look at the time scale that we, we live on, B.C., A.D., and Jesus Christ is the focal point of human history, and this is why. Because he's God's focal point. <laughs> that's who God is occupied with. That's who God, the Father, is pleased with, is Jesus Christ. And so he wants us to be occupied with the same person. There was a death in each household that night. Either the firstborn died or a lamb died in place of the firstborn. Again, the Old Testament witnessed to the fact that the penalty of sin is death and that God would accept a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. And now we move on to the giving of the law and in, in its introduction. And again, we're going to move through this really quickly. Okay, this will be a quick move through the law. But as we know from history and from the Bible that God brought Israel out of Egypt. After the Passover, they were brought into the wilderness, and he wanted to rule over them in a theocracy, no human king. He was going to provide a human king, but in his timing. It was going to be this promised deliverer, I believe. That's who he was going to provide, was, was Jesus himself. But he further reveals his holiness and his righteous standard in the law. He does not now depart from all these years of illustrating what the promised deliverer would do, his provision for sin, he does not depart from that now and say, okay, well, we're going to try the law for a little bit and see how well you keep it so that you can earn and merit your way to heaven by keeping my law. No, he introduces the law for a simple reason, to clearly define sin, to clearly define his holiness, to clearly define his righteous standard so that each one of us would know we don't measure up. We can't get there. We need what God is providing. Genesis 3.15, this promise that we, we need him. The law wasn't designed to say, oh, yeah, I can get this done now. Wow. I don't need the promise delivered from Genesis 3.15 anymore. I got the law, and I'm, and I'm just going to walk around and just keep it all day long. I'm just going to go through the list and, and just keep this law and get my way to heaven. That's not why God introduced the law. It's for the exact opposite purpose, as we see um, in the New Testament. We'll look at that here in a second. But in Gen uh, Exodus 19, 1 through 6, God makes an offer. He says, I've carried you on eagle's wings, but now I want to make a covenant with you. And if you'll keep my commandments, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. We'll be close. And Israel says, we got it. Anything God says, all that he says, we'll do. All of it. And, and, and even by this time in history, it's only been three months since they left Israel. They've already complained. Big complaints. Twice. They're not... They've got no shot. And, you know, it, it's, like, it's like giving somebody the Ten Commandments and say, keep these to get to heaven. And they say, no problem, I got it. Yeah, I got it. In fact, I have many people tell me over the years, oh, yeah, the way I'm going to get to heaven is I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Those are the very, those are the very commandments that are going to condemn you and show that you're not worthy of heaven, that you can't get there on your own. Those are the very 
things that are going to condemn you. And yet Israel responds that way. And then in Exodus 19, 10 through 19, we see God break off a string of these holiness visual aids. They were to, the people were to wash their clothes, to separate themselves. There, there was a boundary line at the base of the mountain that said, if anyone touched it, they're there to die. Even if your animals run out over there. So you've got a dog that wouldn't listen to you. Anybody ever have a dog run out, not listen to you, run down the street? That dog would have died on that day. He probably would have ran right into the bottom of the mountain. Boom, gone. And, and, and I've had dogs where I would have said, glory, hallelujah, finally. That guy don't have to take care of that thing anymore, chase him around. But we're talking about a holy God, separate from sinful people, not able to reside in the presence of sin. We're, we get a picture of God's holiness here as he's about to reveal the law. And you know how the people responded? They trembled. They were afraid, thunders and lightning. And that should cause each of us to tremble before a holy and righteous God. Not that we're going to show up to heaven and start negotiating with God as if God's going to let us in because we're just going to talk him into it. Are you kidding me? This, see, this is the picture of God we have to understand because then the question we're always going to be asked, how can a just God let a sinner like me into heaven? You ever asked yourself that question? Or have you been on the flip side? Oh, of course God's going to let me in. I'm pretty good. Man, that's not, that's not the Bible at all. That's called pride. In fact, the, the originator of the sin of pride is a, is a guy you might recognize by the name of Satan. You don't want to be on that side, trust me. We want to understand the holiness and righteousness of God, and that's what the law produced. And the law is, is, is black and white. <laughs> in fact, in our day and age, you, you wonder if anyone believes in black and white anymore. Everything's just so loosey-goosey. But the law is black and white. The law says, don't do this, and if you do, you die. And if you break this, the penalty for sin is death. The law, the law makes no exceptions. The law is black and white. It carries out its justice. And all the mathematical minds in the crowd, all the accountants are saying, hallelujah, finally, something is black and white, right? Well, God's law is unmercifully black and white. It condemns. That's all it does. But praise God, he's also a loving God. And so although he gives the Ten Commandments, we see that he expects nothing less than perfect obedience. That's the measure by which somebody can earn their way to heaven. Perfect obedience. In fact, we learn later that if they broke just one of the Ten Commandments, they were guilty of breaking the whole law. They could not pick and choose. So that means if you've ever told a lie, you're just as guilty as someone who's murdered somebody, according to God's estimation. So we're talking about a perfect standard, a perfect righteous standard that God gives to say, you and I don't have a chance. You know, that, that promised deliverer thing that he did way back in Genesis 3, that's looking better and better as we go through the Bible because now people actually had a knowledge and an understanding of how they were breaking God's law. It was clearly defined, clearly delineated to them. And they should have shuddered in their boots because they're going to have to face a holy God. We're going to have to face a holy God one day. And the question is, do you want to face him in your own fig leaf that you've sowed and put together and, and tried to figure out how to get there? Or do you want to get there by pointing to the man at his right hand and saying, I'm here because of that man, because of what he did for me, because of the fact that he died in my place. And if Jesus Christ isn't good enough, God the Father, I don't stand a chance. Everything, every hope I have is in that man seated right there. That's the message. That's what we want to be trusting in. Not in ourself, not in a church, not in a pastor, not in a man. We want to trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Remember, if man's righteousness does not equal God's righteousness, the relationship cannot be restored. And so in the gospel, God has also devised a way to credit Jesus' righteousness to us. He actually becomes our righteousness. And we'll talk much more about that as we continue in the book of Romans. We see that God's purpose for the law is clearly defined in Romans 3.19. It's to get you and I to stop justifying ourselves. Yeah, but doesn't work at the great white throne judgment. There is no yeah, but. The law shuts you down because the law shows you and I that we're red-handed. We're guilty, red-handed sinners. There's no defense. There's not even a reason to talk. 
or defend ourselves. That's what the law is designed to do. It's like a mirror with a dirty face. It points out that your face is dirty, but you don't use the mirror to clean your face. It just points out, it reflects, it tells you what's wrong. And again, the results of not keeping the Ten Commandments uh, or, or sinning is death. Again, a consistent message all throughout the Old Testament. And now we move on to the tabernacle. Again, we're moving through the Old Testament, but again, it's just seeing a lot of repeated concepts that God wants us to see as he goes on. And so we look at this, this tabernacle setup that he sets up in the wilderness as they're uh, marching, um, well, in circles for 40 years and then on into the promised land, this temporary dwelling of God. And so it was, this was an elaborate visual aid designed to help man understand what God was doing to mend the broken relationship. Notice there's only one way into this tabernacle. There's not multiple ways. They can't come in. Anyway, they got to go through the door. And notice that the first piece of furniture they meet was the brazen altar. Again, substitutionary atoning sacrifice, the first step in approach to God. And so as the person entered in, that was the first thing that they saw was this brazen altar. Uh, We also know that in the holy place, there was a curtain that separated the, the most holy place from the, from the rest of the furniture in the holy place. And this is where God's presence dwelt during this time. He, it dwelt in a, in a pillar of, of smoke, uh, a cloud coming out of the back of the holy of holies. And so um, they could visually see that in their approach to God, they had to come through the entrance. They had to come through an atoning animal sacrifice to approach God. And, you know, interestingly enough, during this time that the Ark of the Covenant was inside the Holy of Holies and that nobody could go through the curtain and view it except for the high priest one day a year. And so, again, we see this separation between God and man. We see what sin has done in the relationship between God and man. But we also see that on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was something called uh, an atonement covering, uh, a mercy seat where the high priest sprinkled blood, again, atoning sacrifice, the shedding, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He sprinkles blood on the atonement cover uh, once a year to basically illustrate again what the promised deliverer was going to do for the sins of the people. And so again, we see this visual aid. Death is a penalty for sin. Substitutionary atoning sacrifice. We see this continually pointing to what the promised deliverer was going to do. In fact, we see a more permanent structure develop once the nation of Israel gets into the lamb. It's the t- uh, into the land. It's the temple, and so uh, it was built in Solomon's time. And these animal sacrifices went on again, illustrating what and how the promised deliverer would take care of the sin problem for man. How would he do it? What would he do? Again, all of these animal sacrifices illustrated that. Now, part of the value of the visual aid for the sinning person was that they actually had to lay their hand on the animal's head and kill it. And they understood then, probably better than now, that the penalty for sin is death because every time they brought a sacrifice, they were the one who put their hand on the animal's head, signifying that my sin was transferring to this animal, that as, as a result of that, that this animal would now die in my place as my substitute. It was just a clear visual aid for them every time. They brought us sacrifices that sin produces death. My sin produces death. This animal is dying in my place as an innocent substitute. This animal doesn't deserve to die, but they are dying in my place. I deserve to die. All of these things were clearly taught through this visual aid. And so it symbolized, again, this sin, uh, man's sin, transferring to this animal and the animal dying as a substitutionary death. One more example. The brazen serpent. You know, we haven't talked uh, a lot about this concept of faith. We've, we've mentioned it with Abraham. But this idea of faith righteousness, this idea that as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you're saved from, uh, from a hell that you deserved and, and placed into a heaven that you will never deserve. You're delivered from sin's penalty. So you're saved. But we have a very uh, interesting physical illustration of this. Um, also in, the, in the Israel, uh, Israel's wandering in the desert, and that's with this brazen serpent. Some of you know the story, but uh, the Israelites were, were wandering around in the wilderness. They began to grumble uh, about life in general. They, they kind of had a habit of doing that. 
Um, not unlike most of us, probably, as we <laughs> traverse this life, there's a lot of things easy to grumble about. But as a result of this, God sent a judgment. He sent venomous snakes among the people, and many Israelites died that day. We see this story unfold in, in Numbers 21. Now, what's, what's great is the Israelites realized that this punishment was due to their sin. And so they came to Moses, God's representative on earth for them at that time, and they asked for deliverance from the snakes. Notice that they're looking away from themselves from deliverance. You know, they might have tried to deliver themselves, you know, one way. You know, if I'm out in the wilderness and a poisonous snake bites me and I got someone with me, I'm going to be like, hey, man, can you suck the poison out? You know, you've seen the movies, right? I mean, that's how you handle poisonous snake. I mean, you, you start devising ways, you know, I'd probably do the Mr. Miyagi with the sand. I mean, I would try everything, right? And maybe they had done that by this time. Maybe they had tried to deliver themselves, but they realized that they weren't able to solve the issue. So they go to Moses. And again, this is that concept of faith righteousness, looking away from themselves for a solution to their problem. And so God gives Moses a solution. He devises a merciful way to deliver the Israelites. And the way that he does is he instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and he instructed the people to look at the serpent. So Moses holds it up. They're to look at the serpent. They're not to crawl over to the serpent. They're not to run laps around Mount Sinai. They're not to promise to not complain anymore or promise to do better. They're simply to look at this bronze serpent that Moses created. And guess what? If they looked... They lived. They were healed. Whoever didn't look, died. That was the issue. The issue was, will you trust in God's provision? Will you trust in God's provision for these snake bites? And so whoever looks, lived. Whoever did not look, died. With this look, the individual was expressing faith in the Lord. Trusting God's way to deliver him from this snake bite. Trusting him to be true and faithful to his word. Trusting in his way of deliverance. And guess what? As a perfect illustration, turn with me to John chapter 3. You say, well, wow, why did God send poisonous snakes? Why did, he, why did he do this? Why did he set up this weird way of this bronze serpent being lifted up and people look and live? Be- because God is telling a story. God is, is driving human history to this promised deliverer. And, you know, one day that story was going to be meaningful for a different reason. And you know, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here, which by the way, Nicodemus was the most religious man probably that ever lived. At least he was the most religious man of that time probably. A Pharisee, a keeper of the law. Um, You know, the Jewish, you know, Jesus tells him, uh, everything you've got and you've done, Nicodemus, ain't enough. You got to be born again. And you know, in Jewish culture, there was like six different ways to be born again. We don't have time to get into all that. But Nicodemus was born again four of those six ways. And so when Jesus says, you got to be born again, he's like, wait a minute, I've already been born again and again and again and again. What other way is it? I got to climb back in my mom's belly? No, 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 you're missing the point. And what he was saying is, Nicodemus, you're not good enough to go to heaven. You need a deliverance outside of yourself. And so what does Jesus go to in verse 14? He goes to the story of the brazen Serpent. He says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the Old Testament testifies to faith righteousness. And see, the the connection here is very simple to see. Moses lifted up the brazen serpent on the pole. Whoever looked at it lived. Whoever didn't rejected God's plan of deliverance or method of deliverance, they died. And in the same manner, Jesus Christ has been lifted up on a day in human history in full public view 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha. He was nailed to a cross. He died a criminal's death. He paid for your sins. He paid for my sins. He paid for the sins of the world. And now the Bible says this, will you, will you look to the Savior? Will you place your faith in the one who died for you? That's how the people in Moses' day were saved from the snake bites. And that's how you and I can be saved from the penalty of sin. Did you pick that up in verse 16? That whoever believes in him should not perish. You don't have to face the death penalty. 
You will never have to face a death penalty. Why? Because Jesus faced it for you. Jesus took your death penalty for you. So if you believe in the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf, God says you'll never face the death penalty. And he also gives you another promise in verse 16. You have everlasting life. And if you have something that lasts forever, can you ever lose it? No. And that's a promise from the word of God. And that's a promise from the God of the universe, the judge who will declare people guilty or innocent at the end of time. He has told you the way to get there. He said, believe on my son, believe in what he's done for you. You won't face the death penalty and you'll have everlasting life. Now, I wonder if there's anyone here today who's never done that, who's never put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the beautiful thing about it is God has already done it all for you. You don't have to walk up to this aisle. You don't have to join our church. You don't have to get your checkbook out. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say a prayer. All you have to do in the quiet confines of your seat right there is transfer your faith from whatever you were trusting in to get you to heaven onto the one who died for you and rose again. The one that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Will you simply put your faith in him today? Bible says if you do that, you won't perish and you have everlasting life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for um, your word and thank you for the fact that your word fits together like a hand in glove, that you have got it all figured out, Lord. You don't leave it to us to try to figure out, to do our own fig leaf sowing party, to try to cover our sins in a certain way, to try to gain righteousness in a certain way, but that you did it all through the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, he rose again, and that Jesus becomes our righteousness the moment we believe in him. Lord, we're grateful for the work that Jesus did. Uh, We praise you for what this, this week, upcoming week represents uh, as you came into Jerusalem riding a wave of popularity, but much changed by the end of the week. Uh, as we know, Jesus was crucified, uh, was uh, treated cruelly and, and viciously. Uh, and yet it was during those moments as he died and he rose again that he conquered death, that he fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15. And so we have much to celebrate today uh, and next week, uh, especially as we commemorate his resurrection. But we have, have room to celebrate today. And so, Lord, may that be a constant thought in our mind, just occupied with the Lord Jesus and what he did for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.